All right, well, today we are starting a new book. We're going to be going through the book of Exodus, and a very fascinating book, probably the most spectacular book in the Old Testament in terms of the excitement of things that go on and whatnot. Um, But good theology there that we'll we'll need to discuss. Uh, So let's begin now in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for all that you've done for us. Again, we thank you for this book and how it reveals who you are. Uh, Help us to pay attention to that more than simply what we would view as the fireworks that go on, uh, simply because, you know, they they make up so much more in the book, the identification of yourself, who you are, um, and how we should respond to you and worship you. Father, this is the real meaning of this book, and I pray that we pay attention to these things as we seek to know you truly and not merely assume who you are. Father, this is all for your glory through your Son and the great salvation event of the Old Testament uh, that foreshadows the great salvation event in the New. And so we seek to look at these texts and understand them not only in light of its ancient Near Eastern world, but also in light of your plan of salvation and what is to come and how this is the beginning of a creation of your people uh, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we begin uh, this new book, I wanted to kind of just note some things. For one is, it's a pretty simple book. It's not like there's uh, really, really difficult things in it, or it's hard to understand. And so in that regard, I don't know how much you need commentaries for the book in terms of understanding Uh, just kind of the straightforwardness of it, Uh, looking at different overviews, you know, listening to tons of overviews and reading tons of overviews and commentaries. uh, It's almost as though people simply reiterate the story that you can read in an English Bible. And so it's not really that that profound in that sense of, uh, you know, these overviews are not really that profound. However, I do think the book has a lot of solid theology, again, foundational theology for us understanding um, how we should look at the rest of the Bible. And it does have, it has, it's got a lot of foundational theology that you're going to see throughout the rest of the Bible in terms of who God is and how we should worship him. And so I, I'm just going to note maybe a couple commentaries. Uh, this is a new one called the Evangelical Exegetical Commentary uh, by Eugene Carpenter. He was a professor, I believe, I want to say at Bethel. Um, actually, it says in the back of the book here, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, Bethel College in Indiana. Um, he's passed away, but actually, this is a pretty solid commentary, uh, exegetical-wise. And again, it's just going to give you, I think, a straightforward understanding. I've been waiting for this commentary to come out for decades. They never made one originally, or they were planning on making one, or it was, it was begun, but it never was uh, came to completion. Uh, This is the International Critical Commentary Davies. This is a much more critical commentary. It's going to go into things that I don't like, like the sources. That's what you're going to get in a critical commentary, typically. Um, I don't like this whole source thing, not because I don't believe that biblical authors use sources and that there are traditions. Obviously, God's people speak about what occurred, and then these things are written down and whatnot. But um, but I think it's bad exegesis to divorce texts up, to divvy them out, and act like they have separate individual interpretations rather than understanding there's a whole piece here to put that's put together. Um, I don't find it fruitful to go through 
different sources that largely are speculative anyway. I don't find it fruitful to try to guess at what the uh, the original background and Sitzim Laban of the thing was. Uh, that, that to me is, it's like trying to parse a word and going back etymologically and trying to find the meaning of a word. That may be interesting historically, but it means zero to the interpretation of the actual text. Uh, imagine trying to like, you know, uh, study Shakespeare that way or something. It just doesn't make sense. So if you can ignore all that, it's actually, uh, it's a solid commentary. This is, a, it's a multi-volume commentary. Only two are out so far of Exodus 1 through 18. The rest is not out yet. Uh, but this is G.I. Davies. He's a solid scholar. And, uh, and if you're looking for critical comments in terms of uh, exegesis, it's a, it's a good commentary in that regard. You can find good commentaries like that. Durham has a good commentary in the Word Biblical Commentary series. Um, Hamilton has a good commentary that's a more conservative commentary that I'd recommend on, on uh, Exodus. Uh, I don't recommend the Anchor Bible commentary. It's a critical, critical commentary, but it's a critical commentary with such a naturalistic bent to it. Uh, that it's, I mean, it's clear, it's almost like, a, it, it really is kind of like an atheist or agnostic uh, doing commentary on the Bible to the point where the commentator is almost hostile toward the text itself, uh, taking the most hostile interpretation that you can toward the text. And, uh, and I just, I don't appreciate that, that sort of uh, take on things. The second volume is better than the first. Um, but uh, but I, I, I don't necessarily re- recommend it. If you're looking for something that is talking about more about the Exodus tradition in terms of history, um, instead of just the literary text, but the actual historical things that occur, uh, James Hoffmeyer, who was a professor of mine at Trinity, has this, Israel in Egypt. And uh, this is basically just one way in which uh, you can uh, maybe explain these things actually occurring in Egypt and the evidence that, that they may have occurred. Uh, it's not the definitive way. It may have occurred. Other, there may be other things going on, but this is, I think, a good, uh, a good work in that regard. He also has a, 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 a volume, I think it's Israel and Sinai, I want to say. It's talking about the wilderness journey and the origins of Israel debate, uh, which is also a good book. So it's published by Oxford. Uh, good, good book there. So as we get into the book of Exodus, uh, the book is naturally actually divided into two sections. And these two sections are almost two genres of literature as well. Um, They're divided really by geography. So you have uh, Israel in Egypt and then coming out of Egypt. And then you've got Israel at Sinai. And, um, And it's Exodus 1 through 19. Um, or sorry, 1 through 18, and then uh, 19 through 40 is at Sinai. Uh, 1 through 19 is in Egypt or around Egypt or whatever. But the genre in 1 through 18, sorry, 1 through 18 is largely narrative. Um, it's, it's, uh, there's, you know, there's a little bit of poetry in it, Nexus 15 and whatnot, but it's largely historical narrative in 1 through 18, then you, in, in a little bit in 19, obviously, and you're going to have narrative surrounding the other, but that's true of, uh, in legal literature as well. Um, and so in 19 through 40, you have more legal literature and some ritual literature, and there's, you know, some narrative in it. But the narrative, again, is supporting the legal and ritual literature. And so it's interesting that you have these two genres, you have these two breaks in the book, and that's going to be important for the interpretation of the book itself, because the first part of the book is largely showing you things about God 
that you kind of already knew from Genesis, um, but you didn't fully know them. In other words, uh, God's going to say that he revealed himself as El Shaddai, that is God Almighty, the, the sovereign God, in to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the book of Genesis and whatnot in those, in those uh, events, but not as Yahweh. Um, and uh, what's fascinating is actually if you're just looking at the name Yahweh, then actually he does call himself Yahweh to like Jacob, for instance, and whatnot. And what's important there is to understand that when God uses the term name, when he's talking about the names, is that we should think of them as identities. And in fact, the name of the book in Hebrew, uh, we, we, we take the Greek name for the book, Ex Hadas, which means the way out. So Ex Hadas, Exodus. Uh, Hamilton mentions the fact that you, know, you need a way in first, so the, the book begins with an Ice Hadas. Uh, a way in, so you have the families of Jacob moving into uh, uh, Egypt. But what's important there is that we understand that the the Hebrew word for the book is actually Shemot. Uh, it's Va'ela Shemot, the, uh, and these are the names, names. And that's important because I think a lot of people pass that over and they don't realize that this book is about names. And you might say, well, how's it about names? Well, think of names in terms of identities, now, you get a little bit about that because God's going to reveal his name, his identity as Yahweh to Moses. Moses asks the question in chapter 3 and 4, like, who, who is it? Who, who is this that's, that's coming to me? Who, who am I going to say is sending me? <clears throat> and, um, and God says, uh, I am who I am, thus you will say to the sons of Israel, uh, I, I am has sent you. Um, thus you will tell them that, that uh, Yahweh has sent me to you. And so Yahweh is going to be God's identity. Well, what does Ehya mean? I, what does Yahweh mean? Well, it really means the one who is, the one who exists, the one who will be. Uh, the, the, maybe the eternal one, but, but the idea is that I am. I exist that I exist. Uh, I am that I am. Um, or I am who I am. It could be the who there, depending on how we take a share. So um, very important to understand then that the book is about names in terms of mainly God's name. And think of name not as his literal name, because again, I just mentioned that he does mention his name Yahweh to Jacob, but name more as identity, that God is going to reveal who he is in the book of Exodus. He doesn't really reveal a whole lot of who he is in terms of his character in the book of Genesis. He reveals himself in terms of that he's the almighty God. He reveals himself in terms of he's the creator. He reveals himself to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob as the one who can do anything. He, and that there's nothing too impossible for him, nothing too miraculous or wondrous that he can't do. Um, and we're told that he's righteous. But then, look, everyone in the world can say God's good, right? But they're going to then paint God with their own goodness. And so it's one thing to say that God is righteous. It's another thing for the Bible to tell us what that means. What is righteousness? Because frankly, think of it in terms of an analogy in our own day. We would think that what's righteous is that um, you never dishonor another person. And therefore, for instance, like you, if you dishonor an LGBTQ, whatever, BT, whatever it goes, um, person, 
uh, that's evil. That's unrighteous. And so righteousness is about you know equality and all, regardless of gender and sex and all that sort of thing. Well, that's not biblical righteousness at all. Biblical righteousness says, oh well, you'll if you're in a civil government under God and the theocracy under Moses, you execute the homosexual. And so we have a different, very, very different view of what is good. When we're saying God is good, God is righteous, that's something completely different uh, than the Bible revealing that God is good and righteous. It's going to define righteousness according to what God means by that term, not by what we mean. And so even though God revealed himself as righteous in Genesis, he doesn't really tell them what that looks like. It's a little bit. I mean, he's righteous in terms that, you know, if these men are doing good in terms of hospitality, he's going to save them and whatnot, uh, like with Lot. Um, and unrighteousness, we understand, is anti-creational. So we get that concept from Genesis. What is creational, anti-creational? And you can kind of then develop that, you know, from uh, in, into the other laws. And, of course, that, that does feed into the other laws. But it's going to be more explicit now in what's called the Book of the Covenant that we're going to have in, uh, in the latter part of Exodus. And understanding that that's what God means by righteousness. He's going to reveal his righteous character. He's also going to reveal, and within continuity to Genesis, his power. And this is where he's going to go head-to-head with not only Pharaoh, who is considered uh, a manifestation of Horus, a god in the ancient area in, in Egypt, um, but also with the Egyptian gods. And you're going to have what's called chaos kampf in the Old Testament or in, in the ancient, in ancient Near Eastern studies. That is, it's a war between the gods. It's a war with chaos who's per, with, that is personified. And um, it's interesting, in, in Exodus, though, you're not going to have God fight other gods that you have in these other mythologies. He's going to fight other gods through the elements that they supposedly control and show that he actually controls them. And he's going to flip them on their head, showing that they have no dominion over the natural elements that the Egyptians think that they do. And if you know anything about Egyptian religion, Egyptian religion, uh, the gods are heavily tied, so heavily tied to the natural elements that they're even, uh, the words for those natural elements sometimes are the gods themselves. Or if you see in the depictions, you'll see the gods themselves uh, filling in for those natural elements themselves. So like, for instance, like uh, Newt uh, kind of going over the stretch of the sky and therefore being the sky. Um, Ra being the actual sun itself, but also the god Ra. Um, and so they're, they're heavily combined with them so that if God overthrows them, it shows that he rules them and that they don't have power and whatnot. And he's going to display then his sovereignty in that way, that he's actually more powerful than these other gods, which we'll talk about is just, it's going to be mind-boggling, I think, in the ancient Near East, that idea that you can go into a land of another god, these powerful gods of an empire, and this god that's unknown, as Pharaoh says, I don't know who Yahweh is, so I'm not going to actually do what he says. Um, this god who is unknown walks in and basically just completely dominates these other gods and shows that he is actually the sovereign king over all of them. Uh, really mind-boggling, and we'll talk more about, about that as we get into that uh, section. We're going to go, I, I think, uh, well, and let me then uh, add to that. The names then go for, from Yahweh's name, but he's also going to make a name for his people. And so when he brings them to Sinai, he's going to make them a kingdom of priests. 
which is another shocking idea because it, usually your priests are designated. They're the sacred people. And you pretty much, you know, you can be a good person, but kind of do what you want. God's actually going to tell his entire people that, no, you're all priests. I'm calling you all to be sacred. And again, we'll discuss that when we get there. But he's giving them that identity. And what you see in Exodus is you're going to see this birth of Israel. Uh, he's, we, we often think, well, the birth was at Abraham, right? Because he, he decided to make that covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And although the promise was there, and that's the, you know, the beginning of the beginning, this is the actual beginning of the fulfillment of that, to where he's going to make them a people. He's going to make them fruitful and multiply, and that's what we see at the beginning of the Exodus. Uh, those na- those uh, words are used again, that God has made his people exceedingly fruitful, exceedingly multiplying them, making them a huge amount of people in the land, which, of course, makes the Pharaoh nervous. Um, but And then he's going to give them land, this land flowing with milk and honey, this prosperous land. And so he shows himself to be the God of fertility and, and prosperity and all of that. Um, this is going to come into play when we get later into the book and the Israelites decide, okay, well, what kind of God are we worshiping? And there's going to be a contrast between what they think they should do and how they think they should worship God, according to how he's revealed himself in the first part of the book, versus how God says he is to be worshiped and who he reveals himself to be. Um, and so it's going to be very important. Of course, they're going to make the golden calf, and that's going to be contrasted with the tabernacle, and there's going to be good reason for that, and we'll discuss all that when we get there. Um, the third name that the book deals with and doesn't deal with, really, is the name of the Pharaoh, and this is the big contrast in the book. The statement will be made by Pharaoh that I do not know who this Yahweh is, and I certainly am not going to then let the Israelites go. Um, he doesn't know who Yahweh is. And at the beginning of the book, we frankly don't know the identity of God either. We're not really clear on who God is. We understand again from Genesis, he's the creator. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that this is the God that's appearing to Moses in the burning bush. But we don't really know a lot about him in terms of his identity. Well, by the end of the book, Everyone knows who Yahweh is. He's the one who kicked all the butts of the Egyptian gods, and he's the one revealing his character in the law, um, who's going to dwell among his people. But you look in the book, and no one knows, no one who ever reads Exodus is going to know the name of the Pharaoh. And we're constantly trying to figure it out with dates. It's in the 18th dynasty or the 19th or what you know, whatever uh, of Egypt. And we just, we just don't know. Um, we're trying to figure it out with the, the names of the places. They built like Pithom and Ramses. And we're trying to like, well, is it Ramses the Great? But then it doesn't really work out to be Ramses the Great very well. And, and we have the problem of like Merneptah, because the Merneptah Stella always, already shows Israel as a nation in the 13th century. And so ultimately, it's got to be somewhere maybe 19th, 18th century. But it could be even earlier. Who knows? It depends on how you take the biblical timeline, if it's literal so all these problems. But at the end of the day, the book doesn't want us to know who the Pharaoh is. That's the whole point. So we're trying to figure it out because we want the timeline. And we're trying to figure out when the event actually occurred. And then you get scholars like, oh, we don't believe the event occurs because they're unbelieving or whatnot. But we believe that this event occurred. The point is not because to make it obscure. or anything. The point is that it's contrasting the fact that we're going to all know who Yahweh is and no one's going to know who the Pharaoh is. 
So the Pharaoh who thinks he's all that uh, is not going to be known at all. Uh, his name is not going to be mentioned. It's hard to figure out even the dynasty that we're talking about. But Yahweh will make his name clearly, clearly known to everyone. So ultimately, the book is then about identities, which is why you, you get the Hebrew name Shemot. I, I don't think that's a, a mere coincidence. I think that Shemot uh, very much over just like Barashit in Genesis, it gives an overarching theme to the book. So Barashit means in the beginning. Uh, and we talked about how Genesis is the foundations, right, for theology and ethics and all of that. Well, Exodus is going to be about the identity then of God, of who he is, the identity of his people as his kingdom of priests, and the lack of identity of his enemies, which is the Pharaoh. Um, how they actually lose their, their name in that regard. God has his name and he secures it. He gives his people a name. But the enemies, they lose their name. And it's important for us to understand, and the reason why I say name equals identity is because the name in the ancient Near East really is identity. It really is personhood. Uh, God is, it's your character. It's, it's everything that surrounds you. It's, it's what, what characterizes you, what you're known for. It's not just, hey, what people call you when they're saying, hey, please pass the salt. Um, it's, it's more than that. It's who you are, identifying you as a person, your character, your, what, what, the things that you've done in life, all of that sort of thing. Your name signifies that, which is why names are so important in the Hebrew Bible and in the ancient Near Eastern world in general. And so, uh, the book is about names in that regard. Very important. Well, in, in revealing himself, as I just said, God is going to make himself known as the one who is the sovereign overall, the creator uh, that he created in Genesis, the one who promised the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one who can bring about those promises because nothing else is going to thwart his plan. You're going to see that sovereignty really come out in the fact that even these powerful gods, which are seen as the most powerful elements in the ancient Near Eastern world, cannot thwart this god Yahweh from bringing about his promises um, and that's what it looks like. It looks like, well, like, there's going to be a major thwart. And from the very beginning, you've got the Pharaoh throwing the males into the river, killing off the males. Uh, in Israel, it looks like, well, God's not going to bring about his plan now, and they're going to be enslaved, and they're never going to get to that land. Well, nothing is going to hinder God from doing that. And then the land, the very land that he's promising them is the land of milk and honey, flowing with milk and honey, showing that he is a God of flourishing. that So he's the creator and the, the sustainer of his people. And you're going to see that not only in dealing with the chaos of Pharaoh and Egypt and all the Egyptian gods and all that, um, bringing them through the chaotic waters uh, in this new creation that God is doing, but also in the smaller, uh, smaller things of chaos that could e equally kill them, where they're dying of thirst or there's an army that's being brought against them, God will deliver them through that, showing that he can sustain his people as well. But then he's going to show himself as righteous and just and good, and then command his people to worship him in that righteousness, which is going to be a completely foreign idea, not only to the ancient Near East, but basically I would argue to almost all religion that has not been uh, influenced by the Bible. Uh, almost all religion that has not been influenced by the Bible, you worship deity through uh, a temple, by upkeeping the temple, 
uh, through an idol of some sort, usually, but at least in keeping their temple and whatnot, giving money to the temple, bringing sacrifices. And you're going to have that. God's going to use all of that as well, but only as a picture of the true worship that he is seeking, which is that his people, and this is what I call Sinai theology, his people must worship him through obedience. Because again, what is God's goal, even from Genesis? This is what Exodus is going to assume, that we all have read Genesis, that we know Genesis. Um, What is it that God wants to make his people, he wants to to, uh, reestablish them as the image of God? and through them create. And that means they must be in his presence in righteousness, and through them do what is creational, which is what is righteous, what is good, what is ordered, what is tov, as opposed to what is raw, what is evil. And he's going to give them specifics in the law. This is good. This is ordered. This is right. This is how you worship me. And they're going to counter that by making a golden calf. And God's going to basically be like, no, did you not get it? Like I just said, don't make a graven image. Did you not pick that part up? And they literally turn around and make the graven image because it's just in their head. This is how you worship gods. This is how you honor them. And what is the golden calf? Well, calves are, the, the cow in the ancient East, the bull, is a symbol of fertility. Well, well uh, land of milk and honey. And a symbol of power. Well, he just showed them great power. So they think they're honoring Yahweh this way. And yet God's going to show that I'm not honored this way. I've just revealed myself. And in revealing my character to you, that means I have a specific way that you must worship me. And it's going to be through obedience to what I've said. This has massive implications, not only for them, but for us. Because we are locked in the same type of natural religion that everyone else is locked into. We want to go light some candles down at the the church. We want to go sing some songs and speak in tongues. And then we want to go home and sleep with our girlfriends. Because morality and obedience to God has nothing to do in natural religion with worshiping God. And yet God's going to pull his people in and say, let me tell you something. I'm not like these other gods and my worship is not like these other worship, the other worship in these religions. You must worship me by obeying me and doing what is right. That means you don't just give me some money. I'm going to require that you give your money. You're not going to, that's part of you as well. I'm going to require that you actually upkeep my tabernacle and, and later my temple. I'm going to require that. I'm going to require that you have these rituals and you bring these sacrifices, but because I'm teaching you something with it. But don't you dare, the prophets are going to be big on this, don't you dare come to me and think that you can just do all of that and that's worship. That's the, that's the, the, uh, the wineskins of worship. The wine is obedience, that is completely foreign. We're, we're used to the idea now if we've actually heard it, but they were not used to this idea. It's completely foreign to them. And this is connected to who God is. Because he's righteous, he demands that he be worshipped in righteousness. Because he's the creator, he demands that his worshipers be vehicles of creation and not vehicles of chaos and destruction and evil. Well, in America today... 
you've got this idea of religion that ultimately is I go light some candles. I go tell my confessions to the priest. Um, I go to church because I'm, you know, checking that off. I'm doing a good thing uh, being on church on Sunday just to, from warming a pew. Um, I, I go and, and uh, uh, sing songs. I go and speak in tongues. I have these gifts that I, you know, talk about miraculous things. I, I give my emotional worship to God, and now I don't have to obey him. And we replace all of these auxiliary things. Uh, I'm sorry, we replace the actual substance with these auxiliary things, with these things that are they're on the surface. These things are merely the containers of true religion, which is the actual obedience to God, the morality that God is going to reveal to us in Exodus and Leviticus and in Deuteronomy and in, even in the, uh, throughout Numbers in the, in the narrative. And so this is very important for us to understand that as God reveals himself to us, he's revealing also ourselves to us and who we are. And that means we are to be true worshipers. And how do we worship him? Well, all the way throughout the Bible, all the way to Jesus talking to the woman at the well, how must God be worshiped in spirit and truth? That in reality, you've got to worship God through what he has revealed that's very important. And so Exodus is going to communicate this idea that after seeing this powerful God, it's not good enough to merely have this idea of God that is powerful and to honor him as the powerful God, which is what most Americans want to do. But rather, uh, what honors God is that you get into his word and you pay attention to the words that he reveals about himself, his deeds that he has done, in saving us, and then the words that he reveals in terms of character, and you therefore obey him through it. How many people have even read the law in evangelical Christianity in the last year? Even anything in the law. How many people have even read like one or two laws of all the laws? And yet the Bible will continually talk about how we are to delight in the law. Paul says that he agrees with the law. The law is good. It's it's something that we should meditate on day and night. Why? Because it reflects God's just, righteous character. And that includes the parts of the law you're going to have in Deuteronomy where God says, kill the Canaanites. The fact that we don't reflect on the law and we have a distortion of what the law says, we have a distortion of who God is. So when we come into contact with laws like that, we end up saying, oh, well, I don't don't like that God. That God is foreign to the God that I made up in my head. I just want to imagine God as as all-powerful and having all things that I need, and then I'll pray to that God, and I I don't really want to see his full righteousness because that demands something of me. Demands that I then pursue righteousness and holiness fully. And so this is going to be very important. Exodus is a very important book for us in terms, it's really a very important book for all ages because it's the default worship of fallen man to divorce morality from, God's revealed morality from the worship of our God. Now, finally, the the thing that we should mention in the book of Exodus, is, and I mentioned before, it is the salvation event of the Old Testament. There are smaller salvation events in the Old Testament, but it is the primary salvation event of the Old Testament. It is uh, God basically creating his people, 
It is uh, him delivering them through the death of a lamb, uh, the lamb that's put on their doorposts or whatever, uh, saving them from death, saving them from slavery of bondage, but saving them not to go free and do whatever they want, saving them to come out and worship God in obedience. And this is important because this is what salvation is in the Bible. It's not, hey, God saved you to go live in whatever way you want. It's, hey, God saved you to come worship him, to actually become that image, to become his priest, so that he can work good through you. And that is worship. Um, Because of this, the Exodus is extremely important throughout the Old Testament. It's going to be alluded back to over and over again, um, especially in the prophets and whatnot, and then in the in like uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, and all they're going to allude back to the Exodus event. It's commemorated by Passover, the Passover feast. Um, again, just like in the New Testament, we've got Christ dying in that death, delivering us from death, uh, delivering us from bondage, the bondage of slavery to our primary tyrant, which is ourselves, our sin nature. Uh, bringing us out to the wilderness to worship him in obedience and commemorating that with what? Communion, which is our Passover. And so with a meal. And so uh, again, it's just, it has a lot of rich theology in this book and it's the parallel to New Testament salvation in many ways. And it's meant to be that parallel. It's laid out that way. As some people have said, uh, God could have just immediately taken his people out. He didn't have to do it this way. Uh, he could have never sent his people into Egypt at all. Why is God, who controls all things, who is the sovereign, why is God doing all this? Why did he have that famine to where they have to go into Egypt? Why, why is he having this whole thing to where he hardens Pharaoh's heart? What's the point of that? Why not just kill Pharaoh or kill the Egyptians or do whatever and, and bring them out right away? God's doing this for a reason because, again, he's going to be the God of pictures, as we're going to see through Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, um, to teach his people what salvation ultimately is. And then it, it gives, of course, the precursor to salvation in the New Testament. It gets them ready uh, in understanding so that they really had no excuse in not accepting New Testament salvation, which, in fact, was the true Exodus. So that's an overview of the book. Uh, I hope that you stay with us as we go through it. Again, we'll go rapidly through the narrative because I think narrative is to be read uh, quickly. So we'll take big chunks of the narrative at a a time. I don't imagine we'll spend too much time in the narrative. Uh, You all know the story. We'll make corrections, of course, that, you know, TV shows and movies uh, distort. Uh, but we'll we'll talk about the theology of the narrative and all that sort of thing. But we'll we'll probably only spend maybe I don't know two or three lessons in the narrative, maybe more than that. Um, but we're going to radically slow down when we get to the law, because it is something that we are didactic literature, specifically legal literature. It makes you slow down. You need to slow down and meditate upon it. So we're going to start going really slow as we get to the actual legal literature. And we start discussing, you know, each of the Ten Commandments one by one, each of the casuistic laws one by one, those types of things. I'll still group them together maybe, but ultimately we're going to slow down because we need to get it. Because if, if worshiping God is worshiping him through righteousness, we need to understand what righteousness looks like. 
And we need to stop saying, well, that was righteousness in the Old Testament. Righteousness is righteousness. The, the nature of God is the nature of God. It transcends time. His character is his character because it's his memorial name, as he will say, forever. For all time. For all generations. Generation to generation, he says. And that means, what he's saying is, is not just, again, it's not just this is the word you call me in prayers. He's saying this is my character for all time. It doesn't change. And therefore, you as my worshipers, the, the righteousness through which you worship me does not change either. So it's real important, and it's really a problem that evangelicals don't read the law and know what justice looks like, because then anyone can come along, let's just, you know, hypothetically say, come along and talk about justice and it have, have it be a completely different idea of justice. I mean, we're not really experiencing that, are we? Uh, that's exactly what our culture has done. A completely different idea of justice than that of the Bible, and it dupes most evangelicals because they have no clue what justice actually looks like because they don't pay attention to the Torah, the teaching, the instruction of God. And so we are going to pay real close attention to it. We're going to go through it uh, very, very slowly, and, but, I, but I hope that it gleans, uh, we glean a lot from it, and it, it uh, will produce good fruit in his people. As we do that, before we begin the law, I'll also talk about, you know, the covenants and the different covenants between, like, works and grace. I'll try to straighten that all out in terms of why we, as the people of God who have been redeemed through the blood of Christ, must worship God still through the law. Uh, And yet, we understand that we're not being saved by the law. The Israelites are not saved by the law either. They're not like, God doesn't go to them in Egypt and say, hey, everybody, obey this law, and then I'll release you from slavery. And I'll save you from death. That's not what happens. He saves them from death and releases them from slavery and then says, hey, worship me now. I've saved you to worship me. So you have been created in Christ Jesus, as Ephesians 2.10 says, to, uh, to uh, do good works that God has, has set out beforehand, that you should walk, live in them. And uh, Jeff is going through that right now as you go through Ephesians. That's why you have, here's the salvation event. Now come worship me by a change of character and in doing what is right, which mm, looks a lot like the law. Uh, But of course, it's the fullness of the law in Jesus Christ. So anyway, we will discuss all these things as we go through the book of Exodus. It's a great book. Uh, Please read through it. It's probably, again, the most dramatic book that I can think of, uh, maybe in the Bible, in terms of just this battle with, uh, with the other gods, but also the, the, the battle with Israelites uh, as God seeks to uh, show them what true worship is as well. Well, let's go ahead and bow now in a word of prayer. Father, again, we thank you for this awesome book and we look, look forward to going through it. Uh, I pray that as we go through this book, we can see a lot of things that people miss in the book but also understand that it's not really a hard message in terms of understanding it. It's just a hard message in terms of making the correction from our false religion to true religion, the religion that you have revealed uh, that is in accordance with your character, rather than the religion that we make up that is in accordance with our character, uh, good in our own eyes rather than good that you have revealed. Lord, I pray that as we seek to worship you, we make those corrections because we love you 
And because we acknowledge that you have saved us from death and from the bondage of slavery. Father, we thank you for what you you do through your people here in Exodus. And we thank you what you do every day for us, your people, as you have saved us and are saving us uh, from chaos and death through the blood of your son. We thank you so much for these things and seek that you are glorified through them in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.